The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes. Podcast. I'm Taylor. I'm Morgan. Happy Thursday and happy episode 163. 163. Today is all about Taylor Day. Today, it's me, bitch. Yeah, last week was me. Yeah, it was you. It was all you because it was all creeps last week. It was all the creeps. All the creeps. No whole crimes. Month, really. Not I feel like there was probably a few crimes me. in there that... Yeah. Well, definitely in episode 162 with Estefania. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was Guys, you know what's even crazier is that obviously you guys hear it once. I hear episodes nine trillion (laughs) times before they get to you. And this one was extra difficult. So I had to hear her about 10.8 badrillion, quadrillion, not even a real number. A little audio issue. It was crazy. And so anyways, I am like <laughs> losing my mind by the end of that. And I had heard Estefania's case. I, I could tell you Estefania's case. Good, because I don't even know what it is. Man, I could go through the whole fucking <laughs> thing. Here, start I'm like, to who the fuck is Estefania? Veronica. You know who Veronica, that is. Veronica. So now. I come downstairs and you guys know that I don't like watching scary movies in my house, especially demonic movies. And so I come downstairs and Logan's like, hey, it's almost Halloween. I want to watch all the scary movies. And I'm like, I'm not going to be watching The Conjuring. So I've like locked, I've said no to The Conjuring for the last like six weeks, right? Yeah. So I'm like, if you can find one that's fake, I'll watch something that's fake. And I don't want like any demonic things in it. Right. Okay. He's like, okay. Like, give me like some Michael Myers. Not even, I don't even want that. Like I could do, I could even do like the... Ones where there's like ghosts. The smile. Yeah, like the stuff you know, like ghosts or like hauntings or shit like that. Like I can do that. And I can do some that are like semi-possessive, but like something that's fake. I don't want it to be based on a true story. And so so I come down there and Logan's like, I found the fucking episode of the show that we're gonna watch. And it wasn't Veronica. Cannot remember the name. Oh, Sister Death is the name of it. Oh, I saw that. It's a fucking prequel for Veronica. What? Yeah. So he starts, I didn't know, he starts it and I'm seeing all the, it's like flashback to Veronica and I'm seeing this fucking storyline and I'm like, Logan, I know this case. I know this, it's real, turn it off. And he's like, it's not real. It says it's not real. I said, I know it's not like what we're seeing is not real, but this is an extension of a real fucking case called Veronica. And I said, I bet, I bet this is a prequel or a sequel. He pulls it up. Sure enough, bitch. Sure fucking enough. It's about the sisters that lived in the school and like no way lead into it and you at the end the end scene you see like veronica and the i press pause and logan's like you don't know this case this is not real dude i listed the whole i recited the entire fucking case and this was the night that we submitted it finally what do you mean i don't know this yeah he's like okay let's watch it let's see so i'm like okay fine here's exactly what's gonna happen and this is probably what we're gonna see since it's a prequel I guessed it essentially on the nose. There was like one thing that I I couldn't have seen coming because it was completely made up. But like the storyline, I had it, bitch. (laughs) I had it down. That's hilarious. But guys, it was really good. I have it made me want to watch Veronica. Really? And you know, last week I said I'm not watching it, and I would. I actually thought about watching it too, but. I decided against. It wasn't. I just have like no interest right now to because I'm talking talking about it yeah. every week. I'm like, I don't want to watch a scary movie. I did that. It was it was a labor of love for me. Yeah. And I really didn't even watch it. Luckily, though. Aaron's not really into that. He likes like I like like mm-hmm. you like psychological thrillers. I like psychology. I think those are truly the scariest Logan likes movies. jump scares. 
I don't yeah. see. I don't like that. Logan loves jump scares. <laughs> I know he does. And I'll watch them because like I enjoy watching them. They're fun. I like the storylines. Yeah. If they have a good storyline, I can yeah. handle that. I think that's why I really love all the contrains, but mm-hmm. they just literally tried. They hate me. So. Yeah. So I hate them. That That's that's that. Yeah. No, I get that totally. And luckily, Aaron doesn't push to watch those because there's no fucking way, bitch. I no. could do that. I would mentally not be okay. No. So Aaron likes action. Yeah. We always are watching action. I'm also watching action. Military. Oh, all the military. All, all the military. The military. All the, like, I watch guns and any fucking military movie, any any Star Wars movie I've watched, any Star Wars show I've watched, any Marvel movie or show I have any Marvel movie or show. But I like Speaking it. Speaking of, now. I don't know if I've caught up on Loki. I think I've missed a couple weeks. I think we've missed a couple weeks. Logan's been forgetting about it, or it's either been off. Like, because normally, you know, they sometimes do do that. And like I know that American between. Horror Story did that. They did five episodes and they haven't posted. Yeah, Lo- not last week. <laughs> normally, which I'm like, it's fucking Halloween. I think it come out on like Tuesdays, Loki or something, or Wednesdays or something. Wednesdays, and then American what, Horror Story's Thursday. Whatever day it is, it has to be either Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday because it's always on a day where I'm like having to do a lot and I'm yeah. I'm having to like finish up things before I go to bed because he will be sitting down there being like, "Oh my God, Taylor, it's ten o'clock. It came out an hour ago. We're gonna miss all the spoilers. I'm gonna see all the spoilers." I'm like, "They Aaron get does off that too." I'm like, "I don't know why you have." spoilers on your phone Just i don't, don't maybe if you got off instagram reels or maybe if you got off youtube shorts and youtube shorts we wouldn't see all of the spoilers that ever existed from every youtuber that you could ever imagine yeah i don't know how these spoiler youtubers do it the way that they do it it's like within two seconds of that fucking show coming out they're already they have to have screeners that they get right probably like they allow As them promotion. to promotion like to watch it like at least like an hour before it comes out so that way these spoilers can be out there because it does drive up people to watch it if For they sure. say it's good but i realized so like we watched loki the first episode that first day mm-hmm. that it came out and then we skipped two weeks yeah so when we three weeks actually because when we mm-hmm. went to watch again we had three full episodes that we watched a, a full saturday mm. and i love that because it's so hard to fucking especially a show Remember. like loki yeah with so many details so much in different timelines it was so nice to watch one two and three in a row yeah. i was like so into it yeah so i like doing I like, that with ahsoka yeah, yeah yeah i could see that too yeah yeah anything that's marvel or like very intricate and like i would rather Star- just anything that has you let me wait out the 10 weeks and i'll watch them all yeah i'll, I'll sit there days. and i'll binge them all i really will but look you know we can't miss fucking spoilers morgan can't mess with the spoilers yeah but if you if he were to watch the spoilers like today and then he never watched that episode for five weeks he's not gonna fucking remember guys no he would he'd be like i saw that no are you kidding logan I don't think Logan has ever been surprised by a movie that he has made me watch. I don't even think Logan's really been impressed by a movie. Yeah. Besides, like, Star Wars. Wars, Well, he's very... And, like, a lot of Marvels, like, we'll walk out of theaters, me and Logan, hand in hand, walk out of theaters. (laughs) He's like, that was awesome. Yeah. Well, all four of us. We yeah. always go see Marvel movies together. That's our thing. That is our thing. We're going to fucking Marvel movie because that Double we're all going. We got to be there. No, Logan... The only thing that Logan gets really impressed by is not even storyline because he knows so much. He, you know, he's like, he's got the comments. He <laughs> watches every single interview that any director or writer or any producer does. Like mm-hmm. he loves cinematography. Like that's his film and media. Like that's his shit. That's what yeah. he loves to do. And I don't know why he didn't do that. That's his passion. You know, like that's what. Maybe like whenever, you know, we can be the breadwinners, we can let we can let him go be an actor. Yeah, we'll be like, baby, 
Logan, here's our. I'm like, Aaron, here's a dirt bike. Go race, buddy. <laughs> here's a dirt bike. Logan, here's Tom Cruise's number. Don't get into Scientology. I don't know what to say. Yeah. You know? Be like, Aaron, here's a soccer ball. Yeah. Go ahead. Go overseas. <laughs> we bought you a fucking field. We you bought can, you a field. You can get in there whenever you want. You can go play want. with Ronaldo. Whenever you like, want. Like, messy. Whatever yep. you want. All day long. Beckham. Anyways, but the main thing that he's been talking about, like, my ring. I'm so sorry. That just took me by surprise. What? I just went to itch my eyebrow and my ring caught my eyebrow hair, plucked it out. (laughs) And now I'm staring at my follicle. Oh, my God. On my ring. Well, now we know that if you need tweezers. No, you don't. No, I don't. Just fucking did. It's like threading. I have my own threader right here. You You have a freaking eyebrow threader on your finger right now. Okay, just quit doing it on your eyelashes now, bro. You're going to pull them out. Uh-huh. Anyways, it was Ahsoka. Logan's very, very, very impressed with Ahsoka. He's very, he thinks it's like the OG like type pop. of Star Wars. Like they brought back that like the, OG yeah. feel with, but with the new Obviously graphics. had fucking Anakin in it and like shit like that. So like stuff that you don't get to see. Like the storyline. But yeah, like Ahsoka's storyline is really cool because it's an, an extension of like Anakin slash Darth Vader. Yeah. If, you, if you didn't know that, <laughs> fucking surprise. <laughs> spoiler alert but yeah he he's very very impressed and you know what Do you guys want to know what way i have to tell you right, go ahead so taylor is like a big star wars like geek like me yeah you love it oh no no guys she'll never admit it never but like she knows every detail to every movie morgan to every all that i talk into, about in this house into every show and i know that and so for her bachelorette party we had a <laughs> uh like underwear oh. like lingerie little 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 yeah, shindag and I was like, this would be the perfect gift for Taylor. Like, I genuinely think that she would love it. And actually, I didn't buy this for her. I bought this for Logan. Yeah, you did. It was and what did it say? Star whore. This star is- whore. It's a star whore. Right on the vagine. Right on the vagine. Yep, right there. It was a thong. Yeah. Where is that? You probably tossed it. No, I think I know where. I think it's in your now basement. Maybe. My old basement. I would have tossed it. No, it's but it was in, hilarious uh, in college. I was like, "Yep, I have a big box doing. of shit that was left over from my bachelorette that I haven't looked at." Because I too also think I got you lingerie with it. Like you did, like you got that was like a gag gift. Like gift. Yeah. You, I want to find those. Perfect. I know. I need to find those. Those are funny. It's like walking with the fucking lightsaber, his Mandalorian helmet, and just your the pin. <laughs> I would scream, bitch! I would have to film it. He oh would my die. God. He would die. He would be like, we have to post this. He begged me this year, begged me. Babe, can we please be Jedi's? Please, you could be Ahsoka and I could be Anakin. I'm like, that was her mentor. You're not my mentor. Hey, he had full reign of the costumes, remember? Remember yeah. Party City? Yeah. Remember the calls? God, he could have if he really wanted to. Guys, he calls he us when we're on our way to Nashville. He goes, see two girls. One goes, calls us 900 times. I'm at Party City. I'm at Spirit Halloween. Hey, I'm, I'm at, at the next Party City. Oh my God, I'm at Target. <laughs> I'm going to get you an outfit. I'm going to get you an outfit. I'm like, don't. He was cute though, I will say. He He's nice. really, he missed, he felt like he missed out. We we didn't really celebrate Halloween as much normally as we nope, do. No, another year passed. No CNC party, no Halloween. Yeah, sorry. We just. What do you want us to do? We don't have fucking time. It's like every year we add two new episodes monthly I and know. then we end up, and we didn't even do that this year, but it's just like life got harder. Yeah. 
even though we failed this Halloween, we're going to be better for the holiday season oh, coming yeah. up. Thanksgiving, Christmas, watch out. <laughs> for this holiday season, get Factor and get nutritious, convenient meals to keep you energized on jam-packed days. Yeah, no wonder it's America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service because uh, we're obsessed with them. And you guys know I love their smoothies. I, I won't say it again, but if you want to try their smoothies and get 50% off Factor, you can use code CREEPSANDCRIMES50 at factormeals.com slash CREEPSANDCRIMES50. That's code CREEPSANDCRIMES50 at Factor factormeals.com slash creeps and crimes 50. Oh God. Well, I guess we'll let you guys go to enjoy the episode. Yeah. It's a dark one. It's an episode. It's, yep. Yeah. Something for you to listen to. And it's covered very well. So enjoy it. But it's hard. It's there. All right. Yeah. Love you. Bye. And nope. If oh, you're yeah. driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up. And let's get crimey. <laughs> yeah. Not creepy. We're getting crimey. We're getting crazy. Taylor, before you tell us what you have today, I need to tell you what Rocket Money alerted me of. Oh, no. Um, a possible new subscription from studentloans.gov. Do you uh, recognize mm, this subscription? My no. heart shattered. Fraud. But it's immediately <laughs> fraudulent activity, Rocket Money. Cancel. I do not recognize, but thank you for the alert and letting you. me know that I now need to categorize that as technically a monthly subscription. A part of your budget. Yeah. <laughs> As you guys know well at this point, because we love Rocket Money, it is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spendings, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. If we could cancel that unwanted subscription, that would be fabulous. That would be fantastic. With Rocket Money, you can easily cancel the ones you don't want with just the press of a button. No more long hold times or annoying emails with customer service. Rocket Money will do all of the work for you. Rocket Money also lets you monitor all of your expenses in one place, recommends custom budgets based on your past spending, and they'll even send you a notification when you've reached your spending limits. My least favorite notification to get. <laughs> Mine too, especially if Aaron sees it. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to lower your bills, you can let Rocket Money do the negotiation for you because they can lower your bills by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money will take care of the rest. It's amazing. It's incredible. It takes out all the hassle that you don't want to deal with. 10 out of 10. With over 5 million users and counting, Rocket Money has helped save its customers an average of $720 a year and $1 billion in total savings so far. So stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash creepsandcrimes. That's rocketmoney.com slash creepsandcrimes. Rocketmoney.com slash creepsandcrimes. Hit them with it, Taylor. The case I have for you guys today technically is somewhat of a two-parter for our OG pick me cult big money ballin' bitches. Ballin' bitches! Our $10 tier on Patreon. Or a two-for-one for our non-OG pick me culters. Because this case is the continuation of my first ever mini vodka sode from October 29th of 2022. So almost exactly a year ago. Oh, weird. Weird. Where I covered the case of Steven Stainer, a seven-year-old boy that was abducted in 1972 from Merced, California. And thank you to everyone in the comments of that mini vodka sode for telling me the pronunciation of that because... Uh, Butchered it a little bit, huh? We sat there forever being like, Merced, 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 like just going back and forth the entire time. Yes, we did. Of course. Now, typically, I would never get 
give up our Patreon secrets, our OG pick me cult secrets. But I'm going to let you have this mini case because it was my first one ever. So I don't know how good or bad our, I technically did a whole year ago. For but it's important for the rest of it. It's very important. So I'm just going to run through the case to get us into what the technical part two of it is. Before we jump into this, though, I do need to give you trigger warnings for this entire thing, but specifically Stephen's case for RSA, SA, abduction, religious trauma, abuse, details of abuse, torture, captivity concerning a young child. So if you need to skip this section, you can. I think it's going to be about five to 10 minutes long. Here we go. Stephen Stainer was born on April 18th in 1965 in Merced, California. He was the third of five children belonging to Delbert and Kay Stainer, and he had three sisters and one older brother that was named Carrie. In the afternoon of December 4th, 1972, Stainer was on his way home from school when a man named Irvin Edward Murphy approached him. Murphy was really good friends with a convicted child rapist named Kenneth Parnell as they were both workers at a resort in Yosemite National Park. Murphy was said to be a very trusting, simple-minded man, is how he's described, who was ultimately just very naive and had aspirations of becoming a minister someday. Parnell had recruited Murphy to help him abduct a young boy so that Parnell could, quote, raise him in a very religious way. The actual quote that I have written here is, (laughs) raise him in a religious type deal. But that sounds like me typing, not like a real quote. You know? Yeah. Either way, Murphy had been (laughs) passing out gospel packets to students as they walked home when he spotted seven-year-old Stephen. Murphy asked Stephen if he would like to make a donation to the church. And Stephen said, you know, I don't have any money on me. I'm seven. But I know my mom would. So Murphy offered to drive Stephen home and ask his mother in person. Stephen agreed and he got into the white Buick where Parnell was in the driver's seat. So him and Murphy get in the car and Parnell drives both Stephen and Murphy to a cabin in the nearby Kathy's Valley instead of to Stephen's house. And what Stephen did not know at the time was that he was just a few hundred feet from his own grandfather's cabin. Parnell then, trigger warning, molested Stephen and held him captive for days. On the 13th day, Parnell then began, trigger warning, raping Stephen. Stephen told Parnell many times that he really just wanted to go home, but Parnell told him that his parents signed over full custody of him to Parnell and that now Parnell was his dad. Yeah. Basically his reasoning, because Stephen was obviously like, why? Why would they do that? He's just a little boy. Right. And Parnell was like, look, basically they can't afford you. They have too many children and they just don't want you anymore. You were easy to let go. So they kept everyone else, kicked you out. Oh, baby. Parnell began calling Stephen by the name Dennis Gregory Parnell. Stephen was enrolled in school and he and Parnell moved around California frequently. Parnell actually began allowing Stephen to start drinking at a very young age and come and go as he pleased. He basically had no rules. Parnell also gifted Stephen a dog for his birthday and they named it Queenie. At the age of nine, a woman named Barbara Mathias moved in with Parnell and Stephen. On nine separate occasions, Barbara and Parnell raped Stephen together. Oh my God. Atrocious. 
nine separate occasions. 1975, Barbara was instructed by Purnell to lure another boy home who was in the Santa Rosa Boys Club with Stephen. But this attempt was unsuccessful. Barbara later claimed that she had no idea Stephen or as she knew him, Dennis, had been kidnapped by Purnell. According to her, allegedly, she was convinced that was his son, which I'm like, if he's asking you to go kidnap a kid, don't you like red flag like, oh, this one that we abused together. Like, here's another thing. Are you okay with the fact that this man that you're in a relationship with is totally fine with doing this to his own fucking son? Right. Any kid in general. But clearly we know this bitch has no fucking morals. Right. She was fucked. Yeah. So she's like, I had no idea that Dennis or Steven was even kidnapped. And as Steven got older, especially when he began to enter puberty, Parnell began looking for another young kid to kidnap and essentially replace him. He even used Steven to try and lure other kids. All attempts were unsuccessful as Steven would intentionally but secretly sabotage every single abduction attempt that he was involved in. On February 14th, 1980, Parnell and a friend of Steven's named Randall Poorman kidnapped five-year-old Timmy White in Ukiah. So on March 1st, 1980, Parnell was working his night shift security job. And so Stephen was at home alone with Timmy. And this is something that Parnell, like I said, Parnell trusted him to come and go as he pleased. Like, he did not think that he was going to run away. He truly was like, Stephen believes that he's my son. Yeah. And his name is Dennis. He knows no other. Right. Like he thought for sure he's brainwashed. Point blank period. He probably doesn't even remember life before this. Mm -hmm. So Parnell's at work and Stephen and Timmy are at home alone. Stephen takes five-year-old Timmy and hitchhikes to Ukiah, where he was abducted. He could not find Timmy's parents or his home anywhere, so he took him to the police station. By sunrise on March 2nd, 1980, Parnell was arrested and both Stephen and Timmy were reunited with their families. How old does that make Stephen? He was abducted in 1972 at seven years old. Eight years. So he was 15. Yeah. Yeah. Parnell was sentenced to seven years in prison for their kidnappings. That was it. That's it? That's it. And then they paroled him after five. Oh, my God. Stephen had a very hard time adjusting to life. For sure. With his family. And it was mainly because it was a more structured household. And he had been living free range Mm -hmm. with these atrocious things happening. But nonetheless, having the ability to do whatever the fuck he wanted to do. Right. And like also if he probably had very little memory of his Mm -hmm. family. So to him, they're almost strangers. They're almost strangers. To them... He's their he's, piece of been, the puzzle that they've mm-hmm. lost and have had heartbreak over. And For eight years. He just came back to them. Yeah. You know? Because it was a much more structured household. He was able to he was able to drink, you know, smoke when he was with Parnell. He comes home. He's not allowed to drink. He's not allowed to come and go as he pleases. He's not allowed to do whatever he wants. Stephen even said in a quote in an interview with Newsweek, I returned almost a grown man. And yet my parents saw me at first as their seven year old son. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamental mentals all over again. It got better. But why doesn't my dad hug me anymore? Everything has changed. Sometimes I blame myself. I don't know sometimes if I wonder if I should have come home. Would I have been better off if I didn't? End quote. Steven underwent a brief stint in therapy, but never sought out more treatment. I don't think it was working for him, at least with that specific therapist. 
He refused to speak about his sexual abuse. His sister later said that he did not seek help because his father told him that he didn't need it. Stephen was bullied for being molested and even had to drop out of school. It got so bad. He began drinking frequently before getting kicked out of his home by his parents. In 1985, Stephen married 17-year-old Jody Edmondson, and together they had two kids, Ashley and Stephen Jr. Stephen worked with child abduction groups. He spoke about safety and gave interviews about his kidnapping. He really turned his trauma into action. Once he, it it was kind of like he needed to get his ass kicked out of the house. He needed to like meet her, get married, have the kids and for him to be able to work through it. it. He really just was doing so fucking good. And he was making a lot of change. And then on September 16th, 1989, Stephen was on his way home from work on his motorcycle when he collided with a car in a hit and run accident, during which he sustained a fatal head injury. 500 people attended his funeral, including... It's going to get me again. Timmy. Yeah. 14-year-old Timmy White serving as his pallbearer. The Stainer family had endured enough trauma and heartbreak to last them a lifetime. Oh, he gets God. abducted and they even looked at his uncle. I, I, I know I mentioned this briefly in the many uh, initially as a possible suspect because he he was known for essaying family members, mm-hmm. like severed the family in half. He goes missing. He shows up eight years later having a really hard time adjusting to life. But- his dad's not being supportive and not. He gets kicked out. Gets kicked out. He's drinking heavily. Finally, you know, figures out life. Mm-hmm. And he's doing so good. I mean, mind you, he he went home at 15 years old in 1980. And he passed away in 1989. So he only lived nine years 24. out of captivity. He spent more of his life with Parnell than he did without. Wow. Yeah. Fuck, dude. <sighs> Fuck. But what the Stainer family could not have expected is what would come just 10 years later. So moving on to part two. I'm trying to think, like, where could this take us? February 12th, 1999. 42-year-old Carol Sund, her daughter, 15-year-old Julie Sund, and then their foreign exchange student who was really close, I think like a longtime friend from Argentina, 16-year-old Silvina Peloso, flew from their home in Eureka, California to San Francisco. They landed, got a rental car, and they <laughs> the rental car that they got was brand fucking new. It was a 1999 red Pontiac Grand Prix Soleil, sedan, that bitch. Shit. That and, wasn't LA going yeah, down you know, they're pulling up. What's up, bitch? Pacific Coast. Yeah, red car. What's going on up and down the highway? <laughs> Back and forth. And so they get this car. They hop in it, load everything down. Carol drives them the hour and a half to Stockton, which is just west of San Francisco. And the reason they were going there is because this is where the University of the Pacific is located. And the next day, Julie had a cheer competition there. But also they were going to kind of do two birds, one stone because she was interested in going there for college. So they were going to knock out a tour and Mm -hmm. just kind of explore the area. But they were also kind of doing like, I call these Tanya Hooker trips, my mama, because it's like, well, while we're out there, we might as well, you know, my mom too. (laughs) That's exactly like when I went to visit UT, my mom's like, well, while we're out there, I've never been to Nashville. Yeah. We had to drive to Nashville. Yep. Do a full tour of Nashville. You know, while we're down here, we could just swing by Atlanta, you know, while we're here, I got a friend down in Atlanta. Her name's Jill. Let me go hit her up. 
that's exactly how my mom travels. So I already know like how this started and how it snowballed to get here. Yep, so me too. they're kind of turning this into like a little adventure. And plus they had the foreign exchange student. They wanted to show her around too. They get checked into their hotel. They go eat dinner. They just kind of walk around, look around, but didn't do too much because you got a cheer competition tomorrow. It means we're gonna have a long fucking day. Um, yeah, it does. You got to go home. So they go home early. Yeah. Early out. Go to at bed. Night. Yeah. So they get in the bed, go to bed. Probably had to do all the hairspray and lay out all the makeup. No, in 99, this is 99. 99. 99, they were putting the heatless curls in You're the head. You're right. They were, you know, these tied up. Suited and booted. Yeah. Sleeping on them bitches. They weren't getting good sleep that night. No, they were not. Fighting the mom. You're right. Too tight. Out. Can't sleep. Put a towel on my neck. It's just a fight. So they go to bed next morning, February 13th, 1999. Julie competes in the cheer competition. I don't know if they won or not. I tried to figure it out. Couldn't find it anywhere. They explore the campus and the town. They go back to the hotel at the end of the day. And they're like, we got to go to bed early because first off, we're exhausted from that shit. Number two, they the next day they were going to be driving three hours to the Yosemite National Park Western entrance. So what their plan was is they were going to explore Yosemite for two-ish days. It was more like a day and a half. Drive back to the San Francisco airport, meet Jens, who is Carol's husband, Julie's father. And then all four together, we're going to board a flight in San Francisco to Arizona, go to the Grand Canyon for a few days, and then fly back home to Eureka. Really snowballing. Yeah. Tanya fucking hooker. Yeah. You know, my mom, when we go out west, we go. Yep. Out, we go out. We west. go out. West. We go to six states. Literally. How and they're not I, close together. How, how did I start off in where did I where did I land? Phoenix. I ended up in Las Vegas when I went with my family. How do I end up? How do I start in Denver? End up through Utah, Arizona, Wyoming, mm-hmm. Montana. Yep. And we fly back out of Denver. I'm yeah. like, oh, wow, that's crazy. It was a big loop, you know, mom. And then and then it's as the car more than I was anything. We're in Las Vegas that time that we went. And my mom's like, you know, we could just drive to California. You know, <laughs> maybe we wanted you know, to. You know, if we just want to drive over there and go shopping a little bit one day. And I'm like, no, we're going to go to Top Golf and we're going to set our fucking fuck asses down. down. All right. I'm done. Either way, that was their there was their trip. So February 14th, 1999, the women wake up. They drive to the Cedar Lodge Inn, which is like this beautiful, long motel. that's like two or three levels. And it's located right outside the western entrance of Yosemite. So they get there just after noon. I think they had slept in a little bit more than they planned to that morning and they were all like exhausted and you know they were all like hoarse from cheering in the competition their feet are sore from standing all day your ass hurts from sitting in the chairs yeah the pony all the things so got glitter on your eyes yeah was literally (laughs) it's stabbing your eyeball alcohol to get yes the women wake up they drive to the cedar lodge and they get there just after noon not many people were there because it's winter so it was not the main season for yosemite they get checked in they walk to their first room floor which was room 509 and it's on the far corner from the office of the building. They were really too tired from the cheer competition and all that shit to explore the park the day. They mm-hmm. were all just going to be crabby so they were like let's just chill Crash. in the room walk around look at Order shops pizza. yeah let's go eat let's chill and then we'll just go to bed and we'll have a good fun day tomorrow once we're relaxed and ready for it. The next day is February 15th. The women woke up early drove their red rental to the western entrance of 
Yosemite, went in the park. They got parked. They enjoyed their entire day in Yosemite. They took tons of pictures. They went on so many hikes. They saw so many mountains and rivers and gorgeous things. Like they had their camera with them. They took pictures all day long. It was just so fun. And at the end of the day, like when the sun starts setting, right before they left, Julie and Sylvina ice skated around the frozen pond in Yosemite. And Ah. they were like, it was just magical. And so the sun, like I said, the sun starts setting. They got to go. So they get back in the car, drive back to the Cedar Lodge, eat dinner at the 1950s style diner that was in the lodge, go to the front desk, rent VHS movies, and then they go back to their room, take showers, get in their PJs, kind of packing up, you know, like zipping it up so we can not have to worry about it tomorrow because it was their last day, get a little snacky poo, watch their movie, turn off the lights, go to sleep. Preparing to drive to San Francisco the next morning to meet Jens to fly to Arizona. Big day. Big day. So February 16th, 1999. Jens arrives at the San Francisco airport. He's waiting and he's kind of getting nervous because the girls are kind of close to boarding call. Mm -hmm. So he's sitting there and they start boarding and he's like, where the hell are they? And mind you, this is 1999. Like you not there were cell phones, but it wasn't a common thing to have. They were still in Yosemite. There's no service. Right. You're not getting anyone on the phone. So either way, like they don't have cell phones. So he's just waiting and he's sitting out there. He's not getting on the plane. He's waiting. He's getting nervous. And he's thinking like maybe there was a miscommunication. Maybe they already went. Maybe they were coming later because they wanted to do something. And I just fucked it up. So Jens was the last person or at least one of the last people to get on this airplane. And even when they were shutting the gate, he just was like looking around yeah, the corner. Yeah, he was like, what do I do? To do see I get if on? They do come I not on. get on? I, I would be the same way. Oh my God, I would be having a panic attack yeah. sitting there. So he lands in Arizona and he's halfway expecting for them to be sitting at his gate when he walks out, but they're not there. He looks all around, doesn't see them. So he rushes through baggage claim and he gets to taxi, hails one, rushes to the hotel and he's expecting them to maybe be there because I think Carol made all of these reservations. Mm -hmm. So he's like, maybe they're there. Maybe they just drove down here. Who fucking knows? He goes to the hotel desk and he's like, do you have a message from my wife? They're supposed to be here. Not a single one. And he's like, this is so unlike Unlike my type A wife. The hotel's like, we don't have any messages from Carol. He's very concerned. And he starts calling around once he gets into the hotel room and has his hotel phone. He calls anyone he could think of, friends, family members. No one had heard from them. So he stays in that hotel room all day long. He does not leave, just waiting for them to walk through the door. Right. And that's like at that point, like that's the only hope that you could hold on to right Yeah. You don't have like your next move is the police station. Yeah. So he's like, look, my wife is a smart woman. She is very capable, very able. She will get them here. And I'm probably going to wake up in the morning to them opening the door being like, let's fucking go. You know, Mm -hmm. he's forced to fall asleep without them there. He wakes up the next morning. Carol, Julie, and Sylvina are still not there. Something bad had happened. And he finally was like, this is it. Yeah, I've got to go. He calls police and they take this very serious. They immediately contact Cedar Lodge. So maybe they trace that she was there or maybe just also called the most popular 
right. motels and that went over there. So they they somehow get on the phone with Cedar Lodge and the manager is like, oh, yeah, I, I know Carol, Sabina and Julie. I had not seen them the day prior when they were supposed to be checking out. However, Carol had checked out at the front desk when renting those movies. She did this to save time so they could just get the fuck out the door the next morning because their car was parked outside of their room because mm-hmm. it's a motel. So either way, he wouldn't have seen them that morning. But he did say after the checkout time, the day prior, the 16th, cleaners did go into room 509 and everything was completely normal. The keys were left on the table. The VHS tapes were right beside them. The whole room was clean. Nothing weird about it. There were wet towels on the bathroom floor, like instructed where they're instructed Mm -hmm. to leave their towels. But their red car was not there. So then police contact the rental car company and they find out that Carol never returned it. It was now overdue. Police concluded that it seemed like the women had woken up, left their hotel room, began driving to San Francisco and possibly got lost, got in an accident, car broke down, hurt or stranded somewhere. Something happened along the way. Right. Because the way this timeline's looking like they right. packed up, they left that morning. Police initiated a massive search and investigation. Unfortunately, nothing was found during the search of the Cedar Lodge, the area surrounding the Cedar Lodge, the area surrounding the western entrance of of Yosemite and the route that they would have taken to the airport. They could not find any sign of them. So then investigators go and interview several Cedar Lodge employees. They clear all of them and they got no leads from this. Then they go and interview all of Carol, Julie and Sylvina's friends and family members to see if there's just something that they could come across. All cleared, no leads. This investigation goes on for days. There are no new clues, no new discoveries, and they start losing hope until almost a week into their search, a discovery was made. Carol's wallet was located on a street in Modesto, California. This is two hours west of Cedar Lodge. Inside of the wallet was her ID and all of her credit cards. So why would they be in Modesto? Unless they decided to go through there to get to the airport, because there was two ways they could take. They could have gone through Stockton, like the way that they came, or they could have gone through Modesto, which would have been a new way. And that's the only way that their wallet would be there. But it would have been a giant like C and added more time. So they don't think that they would have done that. And why is her wallet just chilling on the side just of the road? Just chilling on the side of the road. Can you imagine how hard investigations were during this time when you have no phone to trace? You have Oh my God. No no, no. car to track. No, like No. I couldn't imagine. I could not imagine. You're this looking shit. at a blank slate. Yeah, you you truly to are pieces, having to go you don't have any out there and do in. old school field work to find yeah. the shit that you need, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. I think about that. When we were covering Black Dahlia, I'm over there being like, shit, I won't be able to solve any fucking murder. Yeah. We got cheat sheets now. Really, though? Yeah. Now, this is extremely concerning. For sure. Because why, like you said, why the fuck is her wallet just chilling on the side of the road, you know? Well, because of where this is and the fact that nothing else is with it and there's no other signs of these women. Doesn't look good. You know, they're having to consider like, hey, there's foul play. There's a third party involved. Something is really fucking wrong. And so we have to change our search search methods. And that's exactly what they did. Weeks go by and investigators are now investigating this as an abduction or a homicide crime for sure. And they're searching all roads, all trails around Cedar Lodge, Western entrance of Yosemite, now Modesto. Like they are covering all all of this land between San Francisco's airport and there is 
nothing. They cannot find a single thing. Almost a month to the day goes by, and it's March 18th, 1999. There's a hiker in or just north of Yosemite. This is two hours north of the Cedar Lodge, and it's an hour and a half northeast of Modesto. And he's way off into this like dense forest on a desolate, not so much a trail. Like he's almost just like free balling it. Yeah. And he stumbles upon a logging road, basically unknown to the public, like only if you're a logger, you would know about this shit. It was unmarked. And he just starts following the logging road as a trail. In the distance, he can see something in like a little area with trees, like a little mini meadow almost. And it's a car. But the car is burnt down to the skeleton of the car. Gasoline. Someone should put that shit on fire. You know, this is a desolate area. There's a burnt car. This doesn't look good. So dude calls police. Investigators arrive at the scene. They begin examining the car. Clearly, it had been set on fire using gasoline or another accelerant. They run the plates and it's the red rental car that Carol, Julie and Sylvina were driving. Not good. Way off trail. Inside the cab of the car, they found what looked like remnants of suitcases, clothes. But that was really all that they could tell because it was burnt. Now, this stood out as really odd because why would they cram all of their bags in suitcases in the back seat of this four-seater car that has two doors? Yeah, what's wrong with the trunk? Why would they not put it in the trunk? And another, so one of them is going to have to be sitting back there and it's going to be tight. Like they were yeah. like it's all the way across. So now investigators are like, we're going to have to go look in the trunk. So they go back and they're mentally preparing themselves before opening this because it's almost like a guaranteed situation of what they're about to find. And they were right because inside of the trunk were the two bodies of women charred. Their hands were still bound behind their backs. Using dental records, the remains found were officially identified as 42-year-old Carol Sund and 16-year-old exchange student Sylvina Peloso. But where is 15-year-old Julie? They did an intense and immediate search of the surrounding areas. I'm talking days of searching, like everyone's taking a step and looking at the ground type of search, like where you link arms. Mm -hmm. And they're looking all around. They're using helicopters. They're using dogs. They're using every and anything that they can think of searching for Julie because they're almost kind of like maybe she is still alive. Right. And would know what the fuck happened and be able to. And maybe if we work fast enough, we can save her. So they send out this massive bolo all over the media. They were requesting leads from the public. If you saw or heard anything, call me right now, putting up rewards. And a few days into the search for Julie, maybe a week even, there had been no developments in the case when a letter was sent to police. Inside was a piece of paper. It had a hand-drawn map on it showing Don Pedro Lake. This is an hour south of the location where the car was found. So on this little map, it shows the lake and then it shows like a cliff and there's a X and it's labeled visibility overlook or visibility point or something like that. And then there was a handwritten note on the top. Just one sentence. Quote, we had fun with this one. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So investigators are like the X is probably marking where we can find Julie's body. So using this map, investigators go to the location of the X at this lake and they go up to the overlook. They're looking around. They don't see anything. So they're scanning. They look down into the ravine and they spot the badly decomposing body of 15 year old Julie. She was 
naked and trigger warning. Her throat had been slashed several times. She had been raped an ungodly amount of times by her attacker and her body was thrown over the overlook when she was still alive just after her throat was slashed. Oh my God. Horrible. This is a monster. This is atrocious. You know, and they said we. Yeah, we. And now now we're really concerned because this is clearly something that could escalate and could be very, very bad. So they're having to work fast and efficiently. So they have to come up with some sort of a theory as to what happened. And basically, after like examining all of the bodies and autopsies, they determined that the women had been attacked and killed in the time frame of the night, like midnight on the 15th to the early morning hours, like 6 a.m. on the 16th. So probably before they were in the car. And their bodies were burned at a different time than when they were killed because there had been some decomposition prior to their bodies being burned. So if that's the case, if they were murdered before they could check out of the hotel, which is what that would mean, when, how, why, where the room was spotless, it looked like they left it, they packed it up. Like this made no sense. There was no sign of any sort of a struggle in the hotel room. I mean, they were just not sure. But they had already actually had like a list of persons of interest and suspects that they were looking into before even discovering the car or Julie. But two of these suspects really stood out to investigators. And these were half-brothers from Modesto, Eugene Dykes and and Michael Larwick. They were arrested actually within hours of Carol's wallet being discovered for shooting at a police officer, drug charges, violating parole. Like they, they, it was a whole separate ordeal, but they got arrested that day for being fuckheads. They had a very long criminal history. Investigators knew who the fuck they were. Investigators started to consider like maybe this shooting at the police officer and everything that went down just hours after has something to do with the fact that the wallet was found there. They already, like I said, they had been arrested that night. So they were in custody and investigators hadn't brought up anything about Carol, Julie or Sylvina to these two men at all. And out of nowhere, Eugene starts making all of these incriminating statements. I don't even want to say insinuating. I want to mean, I want to say like basically being like, we were there, me and my brother, we did that. It was like so much so that police were like, they might have done that and we could see that. So investigators start looking into them. They don't arrest them. They don't really pry. They just want to check this out. They're violent criminals. They have no alibis for the 15th slash 16th. They knew the area well enough that they could have hidden the cars this way and the bodies this way. And they've been making all these incriminating statements. So once Carol literally admitting it. Right. So once Carol and Sylvina were found, autopsies and forensic analysis for any surviving evidence on their charred bodies was performed. And they actually found synthetic fibers all over specifically Carol, but also Sylvina. So investigators take these fibers and they examine them. And they also take fibers from the brother's clothes and their car and their stuff. They're covered in this same synthetic fiber. It's a perfect match. Sounds like you have your, your right. Guys, like you, right? So that's what investigators are like, what the fuck? fucking case closed. But the situation was is that they couldn't, they didn't have enough to charge them with anything. They needed more. And so investigators are like, 
let's still investigate this, get solid evidence, find some witnesses, find something that we can get a for sure conviction, and then we'll charge them with it. But they were already in custody and they weren't fucking going anywhere because they had, they just shot at a police officer. Right. They're sitting very fucking pretty in so jail. Th- th- w- which gives the police officers appropriateness to take their time. Take their time. It's not like they're out on the street, like being like, oh my God, like these are clearly the people. We can't let them out on the street. What do they do it again? They're right. Behind bars. They're behind bars. They're not going anywhere. Right. So let's so do this properly. Let's, let's do take this our right. time. Let's get everything. So we have a solid conviction. We'll get yeah. them all in one swoop when we do all these charges. It'll be like that. And it felt like the case is closed in a way. Like, fuck, yeah, we did that. Damn, it just kind of fell in our lap. So much so that by the time that the case hit the media, because like I said, police had been doing this kind of secretly behind the scenes, not even talking to the brothers about the fact that they're considering them as the primary suspects. So when Julie's discovery goes public and then, you know, the entire story comes to light, the public, rightfully so, is freaking the fuck out. Right. Freaking the fuck killer out. on the loose. It's terrifying. And this is a touristy place. And these are tourists that got murdered. So now the local economy is going to be hurt from it. I mean, it's a shit show. Mm-hmm. So public's freaking out. Business owners are freaking out. And it's so much so that investigators go do a press conference and they're like, look, y'all, we're just going to say this. No need to worry. We got the two suspects in custody, but we legally can't say their names or else we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot and not be able to get this done properly. So y'all just be patient. Know that you can go back to life as normal. Everything's fine. It's all good. It's all Gucci. And so the public and everybody's like, fuck yeah, they got it. Yeah, Hell good yeah. shit, guys. Everything's good. So months go by. They're still you know, solidifying their case. And it's July 22nd, 1999. It's a late afternoon slash early evening. What I'm about to talk to you about for this little brief segment, I got from Mr. Ballin's reportings. And the reason I'm telling you that is because I couldn't find this anywhere else. And I'm just going to source him for this. And I'll explain it in detail here in a little bit. So according to Mr. Ballin, in the late afternoon slash early evening of July 22nd, 1999, the medical director for Yosemite, Dr. Desmond Kidd, he had worked there for three years. He gets home from a 24-hour shift. So bro is so exhausted. And he actually lived in a cabin in Yosemite. And that's what they did with a lot of their employees still do. But he was like the medical director for the entire park. So he barely gets inside. He's taking his shoes off and his pager goes off. And you know, bro's like, Oh, right. What? So he looks at the pager. He calls the phone number that was showing up on his landline. It connects him to a park dispatcher. And the dispatcher basically says like, hey, can you come help us in a search for a missing person? And Dr. Kidd's like, yeah, of course. And then there's like a long pause because he's like waiting for the details of where he's meeting and what's going on. The dispatcher then says, just so you know, there are law enforcement implications with this one and hangs up. Dr. Kidd's like, what the fuck? Because this is a super odd way to say this. Number one, because like I said, he had been here for three years as a medical director. He had been a part of countless searches for missing people. And most of the time, it's just like a hiker got lost. Mm -hmm. Someone got hurt. It's never like law enforcement's involved with it. So he's just like, what the hell does that even mean? So shortly after, a bunch of cars come up and it's got park rangers bringing all of the live-in park employees to be a part of this search. And they were just going around and picking them up. Dr. Kidd jumps in the car and he basically asked the driver, like, yo, what What's happening? What is he talking about law enforcement implications? And the driver explains to Dr. Kidd that the the person that disappeared disappeared under very mysterious, odd circumstances. So much so that the park officials and police wondered if it could possibly be connected 
to Carol, Julie, and Sylvina's murder. But they already have the two guys right, they have the in custody. So. so they're like, maybe it's just a copycat killer or uh, they didn't get everyone. Maybe there was more than two and there's another person that's still out here killing. Even more shockingly, though, it was a park employee that was missing. 26-year-old Joey Armstrong. She was a park naturalist or an expert tour guide who knows everything about Yosemite. And she lived in a cabin in the park. But where her cabin was, was deep into Yosemite. I mean, in an uh, off unmarked roads, like you got to go through these gigantic trees. You got to know it's there. You got to know it's there. And so they said like you go through these trees and you come around these bends and there's it's not even a road. It's just like a trail and you go about it and you come around and then you come around this giant corner and the trees close off and it's a gigantic meadow that is a valley meadow. So it rolls across until the other end of the mountain and on the far side of where you would come out is where the cabin was sitting at the base of the mountain still out in the meadow but just a few yards away from the tree line where the forest starts again. It's out there. It's desolate. Joey was supposed to visit her friends in San Francisco the evening before, so July 21st, but she never showed. They cannot get a hold of her. They start calling her, no answer, and they're getting really worried, but they're like, let's wait it out. Maybe she'll just be here in the morning. Something kept her at work. So they wait it out. The next morning, they still can't get a hold of her. She's not there, and they call police. Her friends from San Francisco call Yosemite, and they request a welfare check from the park rangers. So the rangers go to her cabin, and they check her Yosemite truck was parked outside of her cabin where she typically parked it. But the doors were open. And the closer they got as they're coming across this meadow, they could see that there was like shit hanging out of the truck bags and bags of like overnight clothes. Like she's going to visit her friends like she was supposed to. Like she was packing up her bags. You mean like shit hanging out like they like were just like someone was ransacked. Yeah, like ransacked it. And like her like some bat like her purse is like hanging out the side of it. Then her, you know, open face tote bag like my overnight Uh it's dumped out. It just looks weird. But there's no sign of Joey anywhere. They knew something bad had to have happened. She was packing up her car to go visit her friends and just stopped in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And her cabin door was wide open. Park rangers immediately shut down the crime scene, calling for a search. Thus, Dr. Kidd gets the call. And the the reason why I wanted to use this section of what Dr. Dr. What Mr. Ballin was talking about was because I think it's really important for you guys to understand how this felt to the public, to the police, to everyone, because they were all like, those guys are behind bars. We, you know, police are just taking their time. Granted, it had been four fucking months. Yeah, but what do you mean it's similar to their case? Yeah, it, it just was shocking. Everyone was just floored. Like, there's no way this could be right now, because if that's the case, then not only do we have a serial killer, we have a Yosemite National Park killer. serial killer that could be living off the land, just hanging out around there. So Dr. Kidd and all the search party arrives at the cabin and they are directed by the head ranger and they're split off into five different groups, okay? Dr. Kidd was the head of his group and he had four other people in there with him that were employees. They were sent to search the area behind the cabin to the forest tree line, through the forest, all the way to this creek that ran like a few yards back. So they walk to the tree line from the cabin. They don't see anything. They walk through the trees and they're getting to that creek and they had not seen anything. 
Nothing that was concerning to them. But when they get to the creek, along the bank of it, they notice a lot of flattened ferns and plants and just like super disturbed forest floor. That wouldn't be something that an animal would typically make, even if an animal was sprinting through the woods. Like this is human. It's like a big giant bear had to lay down on it and roll around. Right. And and sprint across it, you know. So they start following this path of these crushed plants and disturbed floor a few hundred feet. And they spot something. Someone in the group spots something just ahead of them. And it was a set of car keys sitting on this patch of like raised ground, like a lip before there was a ditch on the other side. Like I said, Dr. Kidd was the leader of his group. So he's the first person to get to these keys. And he's about to bend down to get the keys. And he looks down into that ditch. His group is right behind him as he does this. And he sees the body of a woman. He could not tell if it was Joey, but they believed it had to have been brutally murdered. The report says that they were vomiting as they were coming out of the forest, running to the rangers. Oh, my God. And they tell the rangers to call police. Homicide investigators and various law enforcement agencies quickly arrive at the scene. Now, mind you, we're in a national park. This is federal land. So this is an entire different ballgame when it comes to jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Homicide investigators, various law enforcement agencies arrive at the scene. They begin searching for any identifying marks on the victim to identify her positively. The reason they could not tell if it was Joey was because the girl had been decapitated and they did not know where her head was. What the fuck? We really said, hold the fuck on. It's November. Like, I know what's wrong with us. <laughs> what did we come out the gates like this? <laughs> no. <laughs> what happened we to us? Tell each other. What happened to us yesterday that we were like, we were in a dark place Lord, yesterday. Let's get twisted. We were in a dark place. We oh were in a God. dark place. Okay. So no head. No, no head. Okay. Was. Was she decapitated and the head was with the body or was there no head? They did not know where the head was. Okay. So shortly after arriving and searching the area surrounding the body, investigators were able to locate the woman's head in a bush like 20 or so yards away. And they confirmed that it was, in fact, 26-year-old Joey. But they also found some evidence a red mechanic's hat, tire tracks. And they actually had a few witnesses too. Multiple people reported seeing a 1970s, some reports say 1979, some reports say 1972. I've seen more that say 1972, so that's what I'm going to go with. A 1972 International Scout SUV parked outside of her cabin on the evening of July 21st. Investigators were able to track down this car pretty easy because there were only two registered in the entire Yosemite Valley. But how they actually located one of them was just by happenstance. Within 24 hours of Joey's discovery, two police officers were driving around the area and they see one of these blue international 1972 scouts parked on the side of the road about 12 miles away from the western entrance of Yosemite. Like they were just on their regular route going back and forth. So they turn around and they pull off the side of the road and park behind it. Now, no one's in the car. So they are looking around me like, where the fuck did this person go? And they see a trail that led down a path, like down an embankment all the way down down to this like popular swimming slash fish fishing spot for locals, the Merced Wild and Scenic River. So police walk down this trail and they come to the opening where everyone goes and swims and they see off to the side, there is a giant rock by the river right in the sun. And laying on this no. rock is a man. Sun, sun, sun bathing, completely naked. 
smoking a blunt. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're not the guy, I mean, I hope that you're not the guy that did yeah. this to Joey because the fucking balls what are you doing that you have to, to just, just park be on the side of the road, chilling. laying down naked, getting ripped, smoking a blunt. You're kidding me. In just nude, just naked as fuck out in nature rock. on a rock by this little local sw swimming hole river area. He's got his arms like behind his head. Like it was just this dude's having a day. Yeah, you know, he's having a fucking self. -help he's day. euphoric. Yeah, he just murdered someone. Exactly. And so well, they don't even know that because there's two in the area. Remember, they got us. Right. You're right. Yeah, they go up to this dude who's having the best day of his fucking life, apparently. And they're like, hey, uh, can we talk with you? And he very calmly like sits up, stands up, puts the blunt in his mouth. It's still naked. Grabs his towel, wraps it around okay. him, takes his blunt out of his mouth. And he's like, yeah, what can I do for you guys? One, sir, please don't smoke in our national <laughs> Sir. Park. And he he's like this very tall, nice looking, charming man. And investigators like, can we just ask you a few questions? And he's like, yeah, of course. And so they're like, number one, what the fuck are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm a nudist and I smoke marijuana recre recreationally. It's illegal at this point in time, by the way. Right. They're like, yeah, OK, cool. We see that. Anyways. So is that your car up there? And he's like, yep, it is. And he, he's they're like, what do you do for a living? He's like, I'm a local handyman. Where were you out on the night of July 21st? He was like, I was at my work asleep. They were like, oh, OK, well, do you happen to know this area of Yosemite talking about Joey's cabin? And he's like, I don't think I've ever been over there. I don't know where that is or I wouldn't know how to get to that. But what's up? Essentially, they don't really go into detail. And but he just was like, I've never. I, and, and that's what a normal person's reaction would be. Like, right. I don't even fucking know where the fuck you're talking about. A hidden road in a meadow that comes out. You talking about the whole park? That's what the whole park looks like. Right. I go down to the local swimming holes. Clearly, that's it. yeah. This is where I, I like to go to places where no one's fucking around. And it's a swimming hole where I can tan and smoke a blunt naked. Yeah. So they're like, all right, well, can we just look? Look in your car and the dude's like, yeah, sure. Knock yourself out. And the officer's like, all right, man, thanks. We're going to have to take that blunt from you, but you can continue. Yeah. We're going to have to put that out. Naked but. sunbathing. So they take his blunt and they walk back up the trail. They go to his car. They look inside of it. They don't see anything odd. They look outside of it. They don't see anything odd, but they take pictures inside and outside and of the tires because they have those tire tracks. The officers leave. The next day, which is July 24th, 1999, the FBI is sent in because, like I said, this is federal federal land. It, there's very little developments in a very pressing case. The public's freaking out. The fucking police are freaking out because they're like, we thought we fucking had them. And these are very awful crimes that are clearly a serial killer focusing on one area. So the FBI comes in to assist and they send in two agents, Agent John Bowles and Agent Jeff Rink. And they begin analyzing from the second that they get there, the entire case file. They're like, lay everything out for me. Don't talk to me about it. Don't give me your opinion. I want to see everything. So I'm sure they did the old school detective boards and shit. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're looking at everything, examining this entire case file within hours of getting this case file and even looking at it. They make a connection. They come across the photos of the tire tracks by Joey's cabin and they compare this to the new high dudes pictures of his tires and the tire tracks that they could see in the dirt from the pictures. And it's a fucking perfect match. It's a perfect match. So they send this to their people in Washington and they're like, have them run an analysis, run analysis on this. And within hours, they confirmed it. Yep. Those are the exact same tires. Those are the tire tracks. That's your person. Well, those fucking officers just let this dude go. 
Right. The only thing they did was take his blunt. So Bulls and Rank, they began deep diving on the owner of this international scout. And they find that it's 37-year-old nudist dude. He had like one or two arrests, but they were only for like drug possession, marijuana, later dropped <laughs> because it was just weed. You're not telling me his name for a reason. And he was a local handyman. That was true. He was telling the truth. However, when they realized where he worked, investigators almost shit their fucking pants. He was employed at the Cedar Lodge as their main handyman maintenance worker. Oh, my God. And he lived there because he worked full time. Meaning they interviewed him the first round because yeah. they looked at all employees. He had already been interviewed when they compared his name. Carrie Stainer, Stephen Stainer's older brother. What? Yeah. Welcome back to why it's a part two. What? <laughs> I hope this goes up on YouTube so you guys can see Morgan's shock right now. I was thinking, Timmy, the Parnell, Parnell, Barbara, Murphy, Barbara, mm -hmm. Parnell's second victim mm -hmm. or unknown victim that no one knew about. And then it ended up being his. Yeah. What? Steven Saner's older brother. And he is now the prime suspect in not only Joey's murder, but Carol, Julie and Savina's. Bowles and Rink immediately track him down. And it wasn't that hard because. He was probably on the fucking rock again. <laughs> no, they found him at the Laguna del Sol nudist resort in Wilton, California. They arrest him, bring him in for questioning. And immediately after sitting him down in the interrogation room and like turning on the cameras and I guess giving him the spiel, he hasn't said anything. And the first thing that he says is like, yeah, you caught me. I did it. I killed all four. And I'll tell you everything. I'm not going to hide it. If you didn't catch me, I was going to kill someone tonight. So thank you, I guess. I mean, like this, this if is they like, didn't, if they, if they, these FBI agents did not see if this wasn't fucking, in a national park, dude, if if those two dumbass officers hadn't just driven down that road that day. Yeah. I mean, this could have been something that got so much worse. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. And he told them every bit, every detail of every crime. And I'm just going to give you the trigger warning that it is fucking awful. I want to hear it. Yeah. Did we ever circle back to the brothers? To the brothers? Fiber brothers? They didn't do it. They were just they, But being, why Why did they have the same fibers? It's. It was the most popular shirt sold that year. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it, they, they were just like, oh, what a chance. Well, we'll claim that. Like, yeah. Like it, it was, it was a, it was a good find and it was a lead, but that's why they had to keep getting more because it wasn't something that was concrete. All right. I'm going to take you through this. I'm going to give you a trigger warning that it gets bad. And I, I place trigger warnings in here to try to catch them, but I, I'm just going to let you know that it, it's going to be very bad. RSA torture. This is what Stainer said. February 14th, 1999, the day that Carol and the girls checked into Cedar Lodge. Carrie was going over to his girlfriend's house for Valentine's Day, and she also worked at Cedar Lodge as a waitress in the diner. He goes over to her house and is waiting for her when she gets off work and she goes and picks up her kids. And as she's walking up to her home, he's standing there waiting on her. He had made up his mind on the drive over there that he was going to be acting for the first time on an urge that he's had since the age of seven. And that was he wanted to kill a woman. He wanted to brutally rape and kill women. And his plan for that day was to kill his girlfriend and her two young daughters. They get home. They get inside. He's about to kill them when he notices a man 
in their yard. And so he's like, who the fuck is that? And his girlfriend's like, oh, I just hired him. He's going to be working as my gardener because I can't figure this fucking garden out. And he offered to come over if I toss him some cash. So he's going to be here for the next week. And he was like, well, how much longer is he going to be here tonight? She was like, I don't know. He's just, this is his first day. And he said that he was going to be a long day. So he's going to be here for a bit. So Carrie sits there and he waits. He's a guardian angel. He waits an hour. Dude's still not gone. And now Carrie's fucking livid because he's like, I had this whole plan and I come over here and now this fucker's back there and I can't do anything. My hands are tied because he's going to see it and I'm going to get arrested. So he just like gets mad and I guess breaks up with her and leaves or some crazy shit. He drives back to Cedar Lodge and like I said, he lived there and he lived on the second floor. He's angry and he's frustrated and he's mad that his plan failed and he gets into the parking lot and he notices a red rental car. It's new to the lot. He hadn't seen it that morning when he got there. I mean, when he left. So he's curious about like, who the fuck's car is this? And like I told you, there's no one in this parking lot because it's out of season. It's winter. No one's there. And he's hoping and praying as he's driving past this and looking at it that it's a woman so he can kill her. He parks his car in his normal spot, which is far away from the red car. And he walks over to the red car and peeks through the window of the room where it's parked outside. Room 509. Inside were Carol... Julie and Sylvina. He continues watching them go in and out of the bathroom, change into their pajamas from the window, like this little crack in the curtains that they had shut. And he watched them until he could be for sure confirmed that there was no one else there except for those three women because no one was in any any room around them, not beside them, we not are above no them. They were traveling alone. Right. He decided after watching them and confirming no one else was there that these were going to be his victims. So February 15th, 1999, he followed the girls all day long. He woke up. He watched them get into their car at the Cedar Lodge. He drove far behind them into Yosemite's Western entrance. He parked across the parking lot from them where he could see. He followed them around the park. He watched them ice skate. He followed them back to their car. He followed them as they drove back to the Cedar Lodge. When they ate at the 1950s diner at Cedar Lodge, he sat a few booths over. He watched them as they went to the front desk and got their movies, and he followed them to their room. He then went up to his room. He got his toolbox. He waited a little bit to make sure that they were going to be settled in the bed, and it was late enough. And he goes back to room 509 just after 11 p.m. When he arrives, the room is completely dark, and they are asleep. He knocks on the door. He says that there's a bad leak in the room above them and that he needs to come and make sure it's not falling down. Carol says no, because it's too late and you can handle this in the morning. It's our last night here. Just do it in the morning. He ends up like talking her into it. And basically what police said was that he was just like a really charming person. Mm -hmm. He was like, look, Look, here's my name tag. Here's my toolbox. Here's my employee card. I'm really sorry. I just want to go to bed. They're not going to let me go to bed until I can just come here and look. Can you just give me literally two minutes? I just need to look yeah. around your bathroom and leave. And so she's like, fuck, fine, whatever. So she shuts the door, unlocks the chain, lets him in, shuts the door behind him. He goes into the bathroom and Carol is standing there with the lights on, arms folded, mom pose, robe Pissed. on, watching him being like, I don't like this at fucking all. Clearly she had a bad feeling. Yeah. He's in there acting like he's working on a leak. He's watching her watch him and he reaches down into his toolbox and quickly pulls out a gun and points it directly at Carol. He says, look, this is just a robbery. I don't want to hurt you. I really don't want to hurt you. It's just a robbery. Just please calm down. Just listen to me. I'm going to make it quick. I'm just going to get what I need and I'll get the fuck out. And she agrees because she right. can see his face. You know, she, he knows that she's a tourist, so he doesn't. She's she, got two young girls with her. Right. She's going to have to listen. She's got a 15 and a 16 year old, yeah. one that's a foreign exchange student. That's not even hers. She says, okay. He instructs her to go wake up the girls and tell them what's going on. So she walks over. She wakes them up and says, 
girls, I need you to wake up. I want you to put your hands up. We're being robbed. But if you listen to what the man says, we will be okay. They turned on their lamps. They stood up, put their hands up and followed the man's instructions. He has all of them turn around and face the wall and he binds all of their arms with rope. He locks Julie and Sylvina in the bathroom and he takes Carol to the bed. Trigger warning, S-A-N-R. He rapes her, sexually assaults her, and then he strangles her to death with a rope. He carries her body out to her red rental car and he places her into the trunk. He goes back inside. He pulls Sylvina out of the bathroom. She's crying. She's frantic. Leaves Jules in there alone. Locks her in. She's screaming and crying and frantic. He does the same thing to Sylvina as he did Carol. Strangles her takes her out to the car. He returns to the room for the second time now. He grabs Julie from the bathroom. He does the same thing that he had done to Sylvina and Carol multiple times, though. He does not strangle her. Instead, he puts her back into the bathroom. He cleans the entire room. He packs up all of their belongings. He puts all of them into the backseat of the car. He comes back to Julie, ties her up to the bed, only leaves a blanket on her, cleans the entire bathroom, leads Julie out to the passenger seat of the red rental car. But before leaving the room, he put the keys down. He put the wet floor, uh, the wet towels in the floor. He wet them to make them look like they had been used. Put the VHS tape, got it out of the TV, put it on the thing by the keys cleaned up everything, goes and gets her and begins driving. He drives for two hours and the whole time he's trying to talk with her. And he's like, look, I'm sorry I had to do this to you. I let your mom and your friend go. They are fine. Like you're safe. You're you guys are going to be fine. And she's terrified. And this guy is trying to comfort her after brutally raping her for hours at this point. After two hours of this shit in the car, he arrives at Don Pedro Lake. He orders her to get out of the car. He gets out of the car. She doesn't get out of the car. And it wasn't because she was disobeying him. It was because she was in shock, completely unresponsive, essentially, because she was shutting down. She was so scared. He has to physically pick her up like a baby, wraps her in a blanket, and carries her like that up to the overlook where he takes the blanket off of her, lays it down, sets her down on it, and continues assaulting and raping her until the sun comes up. What a sick fuck. Carrie notices the sun coming up, and he was like, I just stopped in the middle of raping her. I stood up, and I stood her up in front of me, facing me back to the cliff. He grabs her shoulders. He says, I love you. Pulls out his knife, does like five slashes on her throat, looking in her eye, and then pushes her over the cliff. Watched her body tumble down until it hit a bush, stopped where she was kind of hidden. He picks up the blanket, goes back to the car, drives an hour north to the location where he dumped the car, where the guy found it. Didn't burn it yet. He hikes a good ways away from this. He hails a cab and goes back to Cedar Lodge like nothing happened. Two days later, he returns to the car, sets it on fire, also drops the wallet in Modesto to throw off police. He sent the map and he specifically said we because he wanted to confuse the police, but he wanted them to find Julie. Literally was questioned by police with all the other Cedar Lodge employees. And here are the notes that investigators wrote after his interview. Super nice guy. Don't think he would ever harm anyone, especially because his little brother, Stephen, was abducted brutally raped, assaulted, and held captive for years. There is no way that he would ever harm another person like that. Because that's what a reasonable fucking human being would think. If you had to live through that trauma, why would you inflict it on anyone else? (laughs) Right. So he talked about Stephen in his interview with police. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure he used that as his excuse. Like, uh, because 
not that if I were him, I would have, but it was smart on his end for trying to cover his tracks to be like, right. I would never do that. I mean, do you even know who, do you know who my brother is? You know, but just that's all clearly hear he's that news. Yeah. fucked, you know? So July 21st, 1999, it had been four months. Police are saying that they have their two suspects and he's kind of like feeling confident again. He's like, all right, I'm fucking good. Like, I'm good. I got away with murder. Like, that's it. And he's not one, not two, but three, but three. And he's driving through Yosemite, kind of having like a joyride, almost reliving the areas that he went with Julie, Carol and Sylvina, not with them, stalking them the entire day. And he's driving around and he's like on this overlook, parked his car, looking, you know, looking down at this meadow. He sees on the far side of the meadow that there's a little cabin and that there's a young woman walking back and forth from her cabin to her car, loading things in bags and taking things out and like throwing trash away. He's watching her. And in that moment, he says, I'm going to kill her because he was still mad that he didn't get to murder his girlfriend. So he jumps in his car. He drives down to where Joey is and he just pulls up and he's like, hey, how are you? And she's taken aback, but was being nice because she was like, you know, maybe you're lost. Maybe you're lost. Like, I work here. I can help someone. So she's just, you know, exchanging pleasantries. She's very kind. They have some small conversations about her favorite sites to see and hikes and his too. And after she basically is like comfortable having this conversation with him enough to like change her body language from defense to going back to doing what she was and like still carrying the conversation. Carrie pulls out a gun. And he orders her to go inside of her cabin. They go inside the cabin. He quickly binds her and orders her out of the cabin and into the car. She gets or he puts her into the passenger seat of his international scout, shuts and locks the doors, goes over to his side and begins driving through the meadow, headed back to God knows where. I don't know if he ever said where he was planning to take her or what he was planning to do, but I couldn't find it anywhere. As he's driving, remember, these are crank windows. It was down when he put her in. He's kind of hauling ass through this meadow and she jumps out of the car. She out of the dives out of the window of this moving, fast moving car. She slams on the ground and he sees her like kind of bounce and he's like, well, mm, she's dead, you know. He's throwing the car in park already, but before he can even like get it in park, she's up sprinting screaming across this meadow, running for her fucking life. He jumps out of the car. He catches up to her just at the tree line because she was just running into the woods. At the tree line, he tackles her. They have a really intense struggle and he doesn't really have a weapon on him other than a pocket knife and takes the pocket knife and he's trying to slice her throat, but she tucks her chin so he couldn't. And he was just hitting like her face and her chest, but not her throat. She's fighting harder and harder and harder and it's getting harder for him to control her. He stands up, still holding on to her, grabs her hair and begins dragging her through the woods. He said that she put up the worst fight. <laughs> Makes me so sad. The best fight. Yeah. Screamed and she yelled and she did what she thought she needed to do. She tried to rip her own hair off to get yeah. away from him. He just had a good grip on her and he, she couldn't. And he drug her through the woods on that path that they followed, the disturbed ground and the smashed plants. He drug her all the way down the creek into that ditch where he got on top of her. She starts fighting again. And eventually he puts his foot on her chest and her hand, his hand on her head and said that he just started using his pocket knife to saw through her neck. Jesus Christ. He said that he wanted to take her head, but then he was like, mm, maybe I shouldn't do that. And so he hid it in a bush on his way out. But because of 
how loud she had been. And he had no idea if anyone heard it or saw anything. So he didn't even clean up like he did at the last place. He just jumped in the car, his car, and he drove the fuck off. And he went back to Cedar Lodge. And he said that all he could think about after that was he was mad that she fought like that. He didn't get to kill her the way that he wanted to. And all he kept thinking was, like, I'm going to go fucking kill my girlfriend. I'm going to go kill my girlfriend. I'm, pl- I'm going to plan it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill my girlfriend and her two daughters. That's what I'm going to do. Obviously, they arrested him. He was charged federally with the first degree murder of Joey Armstrong and the attempted aggravated sexual abuse resulting in death and kidnapping resulting in death for Julie Sund on federal property. And by the state of California, he was charged with three counts of first degree murder with special circumstances and one count of kidnapping. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole on death row back in 2002. He is still currently at San Quentin in California, but because it was overruled for capital punishment in the state of California. Since 2006, no inmates on death row have been executed. And so he likely will just spend the rest of his life there. But during his sentencing, he did something that no one was expecting, not even his lawyers. Like it, it wasn't anything that could have been planned. He had a breakdown. He said, quote, this is this is the transcripts from the court, quote, I wish I could take it back but I can't. I wish I could tell you why I did such a thing, but I don't even know myself. I'm so sorry. I wish there was a reason, but there isn't. It's senseless. I'm so sorry. Sobbing. Officials believe that these were not his only murders and definitely not his first. They believe that he had actually killed at a very, very, very young age, possibly at the age of seven or 10 when Stephen was seven and was kidnapped. In fact, there are four other murders that he is connected to and considered primary suspects in, one of them being the murder of his own uncle, who was the suspect in Stephen's abduction and was found dead in his own home with a single gunshot wound to his head from his own gun. They never found out who did it. Imagine if it wasn't Stephen that was abducted. And it was Carrie. And it was Carrie, the monster. The monster. That would have been created. I don't know. I think with, he, he would almost been killed. With Parnell's aid, though. Yeah. He, I don't know. He would have Parnell, abducted uh, several other children yeah. with him. He would have. Maybe. I don't know. Because do, do I really think that he had the urge to kill at seven? Well, so far, his track record is giving Edmund Kemper BTK. And he said he, he said he had the urge. He said he had the urge. But, but he did say women. Do do I well, wonder women. if he was triggered by the death? I mean, the abduction of Stephen to have these urges or feel like he can act on them. Thus, his first crime being him murdering his own uncle. Possibly. Right. But, you know. Anyways, but one of the main reasons investigators believe that he was the one that killed his uncle was because his uncle's name, Jesse, by the way, Carrie reported to people within the family and to police later that, and I, I said this in the beginning, he, this uncle, Jesse, was known to essay and are people within the family and the family like kept this dirty secret for him. And Carrie said that he was a victim of Uncle Jesse. So it's possible that Mm -hmm. he killed Jesse either way. Wow. That's the case. But I want to note two things for you guys that I just noticed while typing out my script from my notes. And it's just like weird things. Uh, Number one, the 1972 International Scout is his car. It's 1999. So this is considered like an old, old car. And it was like his old trusty. There's only two in the area. His is light blue, 1972, 1972. Then the river, 
that police found him sunbathing naked is Merced. I, I thought the same thing when you said that. I was like, wait, is that the name that we were like fucking up on at the beginning? That's where his brother was abducted in 1972 from Merced, California. Whoa. Yeah. Now, when you said the name of the river, the lake, the swimming hole, yeah. I was like, that's the, the name that you were. That's what made up. me notice it in the notes. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, that could very possibly be a, a coincidence. But that's a weird coincidence. But I feel like he. If anything, that's like outside force showing investigators like. Yep. Pin it on this you guy. Got it. This is him. Yeah. Here's your fucking sign. Here's your guy. It's just weird. That is weird. Weird. And like the connection. I'm just trying to think like for Steven, how it was for him and his household. And so maybe he couldn't grieve Steven. And so he pushed that into becoming a, a murderer to kind of like get back like a revenge mm-hmm. for what happened to his brother. But then why would you target women? Right. And there's a there's a lot more on him. Like I could have done a, a I'm BTK. sure there's a lot of theories on that whole thing. Well, I could do a psychological dive and it explains a lot more, but again, it would be like the BTK because you guys know I can't ever just do a little. I gotta Yeah, you're not allowed to do I'm that. A maybe send maybe October 29th, 2020. <laughs> yeah. We make this an annual thing where I just pick a random date one time and do a part two that I forgot about from a year ago. Yeah. But yeah, that's my atrocious, that horrific. What is wrong with us fucked today? Up case. I don't know what. What me and Morgan talked about this off mic. We we're like, why did we come out here with demons crawling in the shadows and a horrific fucking serial killer case? Yeah, no. Why did that happen? I mean, I I did two tragedies in one. Yeah, you did. You Horrible did. Tragedies. You did Ouija, unexplained death. Technically, a part two of my mini from <laughs> literally this year. I did a mini from my this month last year. Continue on. I don't know what that. And guys, we didn't even tell each other what our cases are. No, we should have. We just this came is why out we need to go back to saying sick it. and twisted at the beginning because one of us needed to take it easy today and not None do that did. to you guys. I hope you guys are oh fucking k. I hope you hear this whole episode. I <laughs> oh the fuck. Oh my god, it's had three hours. Okay, we gotta go. Yeah, love we you have bye. got to go. Love you. Bye. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.